<laughs> the same thing that we'll see in Revelation and Old Testament. It says to be alert. It says to be aware. Um, and so we are not going to answer those questions for you other than to say um, we, we have to be alert and be aware that this is something very significant happening. And as a church, we're going to do what we can do because what, Matthew's, or, so what Jesus says in Matthew is to be alert. Why? So that we can continue to do the mission he's called us to do. So we, we can continue to do the thing he's already called us to do. Love our neighbor, you know, uh, witness. That's what we're called to do. And so right now I know it feels like there's not much that we here in Huntersville feel like we can do in a, in a global crisis like this, um, but we can always pray, okay? We can pray that God's will be done. We can pray for the mercy of God in this crisis where we know there's going to be loss of life, and we can pray for the people. Um, I, don't, I don't make it a business to pray for states or nations or capitals or anything like that, but I, I pray for people um, because people are the ones that God, they're the made in the image of God. Even the ones who intend to cause harm are made in the image of God, and I pray for mercy and a quick resolution to this war. Um, so would you guys pray with me right now as we, as we pray uh, for Israel? Father God, I'm, I am thankful for this church and thankful for this group of believers that's joining in prayer right now for people that we don't know um, that are across the world that are experiencing incredible loss from soldiers to innocent men, women, and children um, to injuries, to fear, um, panicking and in shelters, um, I can't truly imagine uh, that life. And yet, God, um, we understand that with the declaration of war, there's more to come. Uh, we understand that th there's people who, who want to cause harm. There's people who are going to defend at all costs. And yet, God, we know that at the end of the day, there's going to be casualties. And so uh, we're praying that this would be, however you and your Holy Spirit can do it, a quickening of people's hearts back to you. Uh, that they would recognize you in the midst of this, that they would see you, that God's people uh, there and through the church abroad uh, can pray and intercede where we can and that people will see you as we bear your witness. And God, I definitely pray um, for those who have already lost lives, for those who have continued to um, fight and we're preparing to fight, um, that God, again, your mercy would be swift to bring some resolution to this uh, war. And uh, God, I know it, it feels like it's the least we can do to pray, but God, we know that there's power in prayer. Um, so may we continue to pray for those in harm's way. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you guys so much for praying uh, with me on that today. Um, don't forget to ask questions. That's just another part of the culture of our church. So you can email those, text us those. If you have questions about some of the things we just talked about, feel free to ask those. I can bounce them off Dan and his class. He can, Dan is like a wealth of information. He's not a master or expert. I don't, we didn't call him Yoda or anything like that, but um, he has done a great deal of study uh, towards the end times, which is why he teaches this class. And so we'd be glad to answer if you do have questions about that. We'd be glad to walk with you um, through that. If it's just about the sermon or again, whatever it is you're dealing with, that's the goal of the questions and answers. We want to be able to walk with you, um, as, you as you ask those questions. So we are started a series last week called Big Faith. And the idea is, what does it look like to live our lives with kind of a big, bold uh, faith? You know, the kind that kind of just like overwhelms and overcomes the things in our path. And what does it look like to get big faith in terms of like growing our faith? Especially as we've talked last week about that 
you know, what does it mean to not have enough faith and to have more faith? And is there really kind of a quantity level of faith that we're supposed to have? And so we talked last week about some of the five things we're going to walk through in this series that we believe God helps use to help grow us and grow our faith. Practical faith was last week, private uh, disciplines, pivotal circumstances, personal ministry, and provisional missions, meeting actual needs. This is kind of what we're walking through in terms of this idea of the series, but we also had to go back and look at how does the Bible, how does the Word of God define faith? And so we looked at Hebrews 11.1. This tends to be a great place to start for a definition, if you will. Uh, Faith, now faith is, I want you to read that word out loud, faith is what? It's confidence in what we hope for and what? Assurance. Assurance about what we do not see. Faith is not actually defined in a way of measurement as much as it is. It's defined by an outcome. It's defined by uh, uh, us, us believing and trusting in God. And what comes from that is confidence, is assurance. And that's how faith is kind of measured, so to speak. I would probably use the word measure in this next phrase because measure is kind of how we tend to view it. But the measurement or size of faith actually is irrelevant. But the object of the faith is everything. And this is why Jesus gave the example of the mustard seed. It wasn't because he wanted us to focus on measure. He, wouldn't, you know, he was like, look, the, size of, the faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. He was saying all of this to help us understand that the object, what we're actually trusting in, is what matters. Everything. So it's not this idea of like some sort of, you know, am I a 101 level faith? Am I a 201 level faith? Like that's not, that's not how the Bible describes it object of faith is everything. And so I said last week, as we were walking through this, that when we have practical faith, faith that we put in practice, that our faith in action and practice intersects with God's faithfulness. And this is when we see our faith grow. What does it mean for our faith to grow? It means we grow in confidence and assurance. We grow more and more and more confident in what we hope for and what we believe. We grow more and more and more of assurance in what we cannot see yet, in what's unclear, or maybe what's in front of us that we can see looks so contrary to what we believe is in the Word of God that, that we have to look through that or past that, and we can't see what God wants us to see. We are assured in Him because of the object of our faith. So today we're going to press forward into what we call private Disciplines. The reason we call it private disciplines is spiritual disciplines is the actual terminology, but we mean private because we want to say personal. Okay? Disciplines in and of themselves, spiritual disciplines, are a personal responsibility. It is up to you and you alone to be disciplined and to work through the spiritual disciplines uh, that God gives us. And so that's what we mean by private. Most disciplines, there's a lot of disciplines that you would see on display, but most of the disciplines are kind of just between you and God. They're, they're not something we would recognize. They're not something necessarily that I would be able to look at you and guess that you are engaging in that discipline because it's a private and personal discipline. Here's a great, this is Douglas Rumford. He's written a few books on this. Um, spiritual discipline, I love that his definition, is developing soul reflexes so that we know how to live. We, di- we discipline ourselves to develop soul memory in the normal times, right, so that we'll be equipped for the times of high demand and deep crisis. There's this idea that our our spiritual disciplines help us sort of when everything's sort of calm, 
We can be in training, right? This is very similar to what the military does. It's similar to what athletes do. It's, it's in the non-competitive times that they're training and disciplining themselves so they can be ready in the high-stress times, in the times of high demand. So what are the spiritual disciplines? Well, <laughs> take your guess. There's no concisive list. There's no necessarily, you won't Google this and find one cons- completely uh, uh, comprehensive list, so to speak, that everybody agrees on. But there's a lot of similarities in those things. Dallas Willard has a great, I love his, uh, the way he categorizes them uh, as disciplines of abstinence, which means we're withholding or disciplining ourselves this way. There's disciplines of engagement, right? If you look at uh, Robert Foster, he's written a few books as well. Uh, he actually breaks them into the three things. He calls them uh, internal disciplines. Some are external disciplines and some are corporate disciplines, right? Great example would be worship. Worship is an individual private discipline, but it's also a corporate discipline. Prayer can be individual and corporate. So does that make sense? Like it's just pick your list, pick your person. Um, they're going to be, there's a lot of similarities and there's going to be some things that, that hit on all of them, but some will have some different things as well. Now, the reason I bring this up is because a lot of people, we focus immediately on sort of, uh, not the big three, but just stuff that's, that's kind of the fun, fun, fundamental things or foundational things. Bible reading, right? Prayer, worship. These tend to be these very baseline fundamentals, you know, do not pass go, do not collect $200, you know, like this is where you start. Um, but, but as a church, we do, we do a whole series on this right? We, like, we'll do a whole series on reading your Bible, right? We'll do a whole series on prayer. We'll do a whole series sometimes on the importance of worship and what it means and how to understand it. So um, today I'm not necessarily hitting those. I decided today I want to talk about, because it's the private disciplines, I want to talk about three examples of really personal disciplines that, that no one in your life would know that you're engaging in or not just by looking at you. Like they really are just you and God, okay? They're just, they're just you and God. Maybe your spouse would know, okay? But that's primarily this personal, you know, individual, very personal to you, disciplines. But the reason I wanted to do that is because there are also three, I'm gonna give you three examples of ones that I actually think if you did choose to engage them, uh, you would have exponential growth in your faith, like the results of which would, would be huge in terms of boosting and the way you could feel uh, God's movement and, and, and in your life. And so I just was like, okay, God, kind of, you know, walk, walk me through this. So I, I believe God gave me three to focus on today. There's, again, there's a list of many. Three to focus on today. And the one I'm going to focus on first is Bible memorization. Okay? This is a little bit beyond just the reading of the Bible. It's a little bit beyond the study. Get your cliff notes out or your study notes out or, you know, your life application Bible. These are all good. Maybe you go deep into the hermeneutics and things like that. That's fine. Uh, Bible study, because that's definitely a discipline. Um, this is the actual sort of taking in and, and, and keeping the Word of God in you. This is, to, to again, the idea of a soul reflex so that you can recall Scripture. That's what Bible memorization actually is. Matter of fact, I love this. This is a great quote. This is again from Dallas Willard. Bible memorization is absolutely fundamental to spiritual formation. If I had to choose between all the disciplines of spiritual life, 
I would choose Bible memorization. That's huge. Why? Because it is fundamental. It is a fundamental way of filling our minds with what it needs most. It's a fundamental way of filling and, and us retaining what our minds need the most in terms of helping us change the way we think, in terms of helping us with transformation. That's how important Bible memorization is. Now, I was fortunate as a kid. I grew up um, with a kind of a heavy emphasis on this, uh, similar to what we do in, in Kid Street. Um, you know, we had Bible verses that we've memorized in Sunday school. Uh, Kid Street, our church has uh, theme verses for the month, and our children kind of repeat them and repeat them and repeat them with the goal for them to memorize those verses. Uh, but I was, I mean, every program I was in as a kid had something to do with Bible verses. Bible drills, you know, Awana. You guys remember Awana? I mean, Awana's like, I mean, it probably wasn't for the right motivation. It was just to get candy or some prize, right? But, uh, and to get my book checked, but, but that I still, you know, still was memorizing verses. And I probably didn't realize until I was definitely an adult trying to memorize verses, not only how much easier it was when I was younger, right, but just how beneficial it was, just how truly beneficial it was to put all of this in there so that I can recall it later, you know, right now as an adult, it's a little bit harder, but it's not impossible to put, you know, put verses and put scripture to memory. Here's a few verses about that. This is in Psalm 119. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. And it's funny because, again, going back to scripture memory, uh, for those who are paying attention sometimes in a sermon, you might see me sometimes fumble around a little bit with like as, as if I can't read, you know, sometimes with scripture. But what's actually happening is sometimes what I've memorized and what I'm reading are so similar that I will, my, my reflex will be what I memorized, right? But this one was really different in King James. It was, thy word have I hidden in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Yeah, everybody knows. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> thee, right? But it was still what I put into memory. Here's a, a little bit later on in verse 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Notice how easily that came out because that's what I memorized. Not necessarily what's written. It's the same thing, but I will oftentimes revert to what's already there because it's those things that you can recall. I may not be able to recall every single time that it's Psalm 119, but that, for, that verse has been locked in for many, 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 many years. This is God to Joshua, to the people of Israel when they're getting ready to take the promised land. He tells them, study this book of instruction continually meditate on it day and night. Why? So you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. You know, how are you going to obey it if you don't know what it is? How are you going to obey it if you can't remember what it is and you constantly have to go back and look for it? Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This again goes back to the continual promises of God to his people that if you live life my way, if you do the things I told you to do, if you obey, you're going to be successful. You're going to live a prosperous, enjoy this life. And they just constantly kept not doing that. And they kept trying to choose to do life their way. And then they would come back and then they had to, they had to be you know, judged and cursed and so on and so on. And then, they would, then somebody would come along and be like, let's read the Bible again. Oh, what a great idea, you know? And then they'd start doing what the Bible says. And it's just, it on and on it goes. Bible memorization. Now, if you're anything like me, 
a good majority of you in the room, okay, you can recall a great number of things from your childhood. Most of that is 80s and 90s song lyrics, right? Yeah, and so, uh, 70s, okay, I'll throw that in there, 70s, 80s, and 90s song lyrics. Yeah, 60s, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can go back even further, right? But, but for me, it would be actually movies, it'd be movie, movie lines, that tends to be a little bit more my speed, but you know, my wife, she remembers a lot, of the, a lot of the songs. Why? Well, that tended to be the thing that was on all the time, right? That tended to be the thing that was repetitive, and then, trust me, there's a whole science to music and memorization and why that works, you know, why that's, a, that's actually a good thing to put things to music. Why? We tend to remember those things, and yet, for many of us, we would struggle to recall scripture. We would struggle to recall the word of God, especially in times when we need it the most. And yet this is how God, and that's why I think it's beautiful. Just imagine the fact that this is how what God designed. God designed you and me in such a way that we could put the living, breathing word of God in us and that it could be recalled, right? It could be recalled in moments of need. I think about when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was tempted by the enemy, right? The devil shows up and wants to tempt him three times, and, and, and sometimes this is seen as like a little bit of a, uh, well, he's, Jesus was God, and, you know, you know, he pulls scripture out to kind of combat the devil, and he's like, yeah, whatever, Jesus, like, if you, if you go down the whole line, like, Jesus, the Trinity, the scriptures being inspired, Holy Spirit inspired, like, he was there when it was written right? Okay, you can go down that path. But I have loved the argument that honestly, the 40 days of, of, of wilderness for Jesus was to lean into his humanity. And in, in his humanity, when it, was, when it was his human flesh that was struggling, because remember, he, he tempted him first with food, right? Tempted him first with the, meeting his physical need. That Jesus was raised as, in the Jewish culture and in the Jewish traditional culture, between the ages of 10 to 13, you would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. You would have had the Torah memorized. And if you go back and look, what did Jesus bring out? Jesus brings out what he would have memorized as a child, as a, just a Jewish boy, to combat, in his flesh, to combat the enemy because of the memorization of Scripture. It's huge. It's huge. And the fact that God created this is beautiful. I love this quote. This is from Chuck Swindoll, who's a pastor and author. He says, I know of no other single practice in Christian life more rewarding, practically speaking, than memorizing God's word. No other single exercise pays great, greater spiritual dividends. Your prayer life will be strengthened. Keep going. Uh, your witnessing will be sharper and much more effective. Your attitudes and outlook will begin to change. Your mind will become alert and observant. Your confidence and assurance, right, will be enhanced and your faith will be solidified. What a great just punch, so to speak, of just how much benefit this brings our lives. How could we see growth in our confidence and assurance just by doing this simple thing? You know, putting it on a note card in your car, on your fridge, at the mirror in your house. My wife loves uh, post-it notes, so she'll oftentimes have post-it notes. You know, I'll have to look for something on her desk sometimes, and she's very organized, trust me, but every once in a while I'll see a bunch of post-it notes, and half the time, two or three of them are scripture, right? It could be something that God prompted her, and she needs to remember for something else. It could be something that somebody needed, and she had to go look it up, and then she wanted to make sure she remembered it, 
Um, but it's ways in which this kind of prompts us to put these things into us, to put them into memory. Why? So that when someone does need to be encouraged, it's not just your feelings and thoughts and some muse you heard on, you know, you read online or a muse you heard in the middle of a show you binged. It's the Word of God that can encourage them. So that when you yourself are heartbroken or sorrowful, you know, God doesn't necessarily want you to call up five of your friends. He wants you to lean into Him. And He might have something for you that you've brought into you through memorization years ago. But He's going to use that right in that moment to encourage you. Guys, it's amazing. What a, what a beautiful benefit to this, again, fairly simple but very personal discipline. Okay, no one will know you're doing this but you. I mean, if you're going around quoting scripture, we might take a guess, you know. But no one will really know but you. But the benefit is not just for you. It's for everything God has planned in your life. Here's the, uh, here's the second one. Tithing and giving. Now, the reason I didn't necessarily try to make this like a tithing and giving message is because we're not doing that today. If you need the context for this, I understand but I want to talk specifically just about the fact that it's such a personal discipline, okay? Why this is such a personal thing for people. That's kind of where I'm focusing today. But I do want to talk about it in its biblical context. So tithing and giving are different. They're separate. Tithing is a tenth, and it has a lot to do with foundational giving history for God's people with a tenth of their resources. And I mean, there's lots of things with first fruits and things like that that they did with grains and animals and things like that. Uh, just their resources. Giving was always, always kind of talked about from the standpoint of sacrificial uh, offering. Um, offerings were always kind of giving sacrificially and uh, giving to a need. Okay? So that's kind of how they, they delineate those two things. So here's an example of when God's people were being judged, again, not necessarily doing things the right way, not doing things the way God wanted them to do it, and they were in the middle of judging and cursing. But here's how he talked about, at one time, giving and tithing. He said, "Should pe this is God through the, the uh, prophet Malachi, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, when, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you, God? Well, you have cheated me of your tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse, for the whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, okay, if you do what I've told you to do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open up the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. This is one of the few commands that we're ever given. The permission to test God in is with money. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine, because they're ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He goes on to say, you, you and then all the nations will call you blessed, for your land's going to be such a delight, says the Lord. And I think this is one of those things where you've got to be, we've got to understand again the encouragement that comes from understanding where he says, test me. Test me in this, you'll... It doesn't take more than a step for me to meet you in that step, is what he's basically saying. He, he, he says, try it, and, and you will recognize God's faithfulness. You will see something. 
Uh, here's where, because some people think, well, it's just Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. Jesus talked quite a bit about this concept of giving and generosity and tithing. Oftentimes he did it within the context of a whole. He talked about it from the standpoint of God owning everything and everything you have giving back to him. Uh, but here's one of the ways he talked about money. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. It's one of the reasons I like this translation. I love that phrasing. You cannot serve God and money. Serve God and be enslaved to money. Because some people think money is the problem. Money, God created money. You know that? Because gold is in the earth. Did you guys know that he created money? Okay, good. All right, so God created all the things, you know, that we have over the centuries traded for value. That's, he created it. So it wasn't like God's against those things. But the reality is, is that he's saying you, you can be enslaved to those things, and that's the problem. It's where he goes on to say that money's the root of all evil, right? It's, it's sort of this enslavement to things. Now, here's the problem. Most of the time when people talk about this, especially when it comes to a discipline, especially when it comes to actual faith and action, you get some really bad theology. Okay, you get some bad teaching, bad doctrine, bad theology. Theology meaning our view of God our understanding of God through the lens of money. And I tell people sometimes it's kind of like it's, it's painting God as sort of like a mafia, like uh, uh, organized crime where, you know, he shows up at your house. And he's like, wow, what a great house you have here. It'd be a shame if anything happened to it, you know. Uh, you know, give me a little bit off the top and I'll protect you. Does that make sense? Like, this is, listen, this is how people see God when there's bad teaching like this. Well, you're cheating God and you're doing this, so you need to give to my ministry. You need to give to, to me. Like, that's real. That comes out. The slave, you're, the, you're enslaved to money. You've got to treat that by giving me more than you could possibly afford. And we don't do that here, okay? We don't do that here. We want us to understand how did he talk about it as a discipline? Why is it considered a discipline? Here's how Jesus talked about Giving as well. Another thing that kind of creates some bad teaching. Give and you will receive. Your gift will be returned to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together, make room for more. Running over, poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Now, so many people use this just in terms of money. Jesus actually was talking about everything. Forgiveness, love, mercy. Like he was using this in terms of a fuller context, but money was included. Your resources were included because you're never going to outgive God. You're never going to be more generous than God will be with you. But again, this sort of becomes the source of this weird tit for tat money blessing theology and doctrine that comes in. Well, if you give me, you know, I'm going to give you my $10, right? And then God said, well, the, pre the preacher said, the, the evangelist said, the guy on TV said that he's going to bless me 30, 60, 100 fold. That's another verse they take out of context, by the way. 30, 60, 100 fold, and I'll get this money back. And that's not the way that works. Okay, that, it, it just isn't. Now, I, I, I can't go in the deep dive of the blessing of God, but I just want you to understand, from a discipline standpoint, this is some of the stuff that has come up. And it's also some of the reason that people get really tight because they don't understand it. Not only do they not understand their money, they don't understand how to view God in light of this. Therefore, this discipline goes nowhere. 
They do not understand how to engage this discipline because it's so personal to them. Well, I'm going to give you the example that he gave the church. So this is Paul. Uh, this is going to be our passage, by the way, in your scripture card uh, that we're going to read together. This is 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing the church, and he gives a very similar illustration that Jesus gives. Okay, Paul's always in line with, with even the illustrations and things that Jesus gives of how the church functions when it comes to this discipline of tithing and giving. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Now, the context for this, by the way, I've skipped it, but he's collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. So this is not tithing. This is just an offering. This is just the church in these other areas giving to help meet needs in Jerusalem. So this is what we're talking about here. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. Don't give reluctantly or under pressure, or sorry, in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. This follows the Old Testament blessing of enough and plenty, enough to meet your needs and plenty to share with others. Verse 9, as Scripture says, they who share freely and give generously to the poor, their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be rich, enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when you are, sorry, when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. Right? We're going to take your giving to the church in Jerusalem and they're going to thank God for it. Verse 12, two things come as a result of this ministry of giving. The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thankfulness to God. And as a result of this ministry, they will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. You are obeying what God's called you to do. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace that is given to you. And I love verse 15. It says, thank God for this gift to wonderful for words. And he's not talking about the gift of the money they're going to give him. Paul's talking about the gift of this discipline, the gift of this thing you created of sowing and reaping. Thank God for this gift of ministry, of the gifts of ministry that are going to be given. Like Paul's kind of painting all the things that are going to happen. And he's like, thank God for this. It's too wonderful for words the way God created this for you and for me to understand as a church. So here's, here's what I want to give you. I want to give you a really simple way to see this. Simple because again, you know, this isn't that hard to teach and this isn't that hard to understand. It's just hard for us to surrender, right? It's hard to let these things, the seeds go, the, the fists that we have a hold of, of what's so personal to us. That's what's hard. You can make a thousand reasons why this is the dumbest me message Matt ever preached, right? Like you'll make, you can think about that on the way home. I'm just telling you, I'm going to give you the easiest way to see this, okay? Why, it's, why bad theology shows up, but where God wanted you to see this. It starts with understanding what seed is. He talks about seed because he created a system of sowing and reaping. It's not a system of trading seed. Everybody with me? 
It's not a system of give me 10 seeds and I'll give you 30, 60, or 100 seeds. That is not the system that God created. So we cannot view that from a context and lens of how giving and this discipline works. He gave us seed to sow and to experience a harvest, right? To experience fruit of it. Like, you know, look, apples, blue, this blueberries. By the way, I had to blow these up because they're super tiny, right? Uh, watermelon, you guys can recognize these, right? Seed for seed. That's not the system of, of giving and, and receiving and blessing. And that's not what was created by God. This is what was created by God. Matter of fact, the only way you get here is when you recognize, go back to verse 10, you recognize this. God is the one who provided the seed for the farmer and then the bread to eat, right? You have to get to a place to understand, well, the seed belongs to him and I get the bread, right? The seed belongs to him, but I get the fruit, right? The fruit, fruit is part of what I get to enjoy, Fruit is part of life. Fruit is part of what I get to experience. He gives us the seed. He gives the bread. He gives the increase, right, of the resources and produces a great harvest of generosity in you. What does that mean? Well, what happens is, the way it's supposed to work, go back to the picture, is we get the seed, and it only takes one seed, and there's about seven to ten seeds in an apple, Okay? But one seed grows an apple tree with however many apples, right? One seed can grow that. Blueberries have 50 seeds in them. That's why they taste so weird. Blueberries have 50, super small. There are 50 seeds in blueberries. Watermelon, 200 to 800 seeds in watermelon. You know the most seed thing, most, well, most seeds? Pomegranates, 1,300 seeds. Okay? So the system he creates is he gives us the seed for the farmer to invest, to give, to give back, to in, to in, and we get to enjoy, we get to experience the blessing of God, and through the blessing of God, he increases what we have to be more generous with. Everybody with me? Nod your head if you're, just, just, just entertain me, right? Like, this is how it works, okay? But I'm telling you, we are, we are so addicted to seed. Okay, we're storing seed. We're holding so tight to seed. And we are missing what God has in store. This is why he says, man, you take a step here, you test me in this. You test me in this discipline, I'm going to show up. Don't hear 10 bucks in the tip jar today is going to solve all your problems. Okay, don't hear that. This is a discipline, tithing and giving. It's so much more than you could possibly imagine. And God created this beautiful system for us to be able to see it, understand it, and enjoy it. Not just so that we can give, but that we get this beautiful generosity of harvest of generosity in us to be able to give even more, to be able to help provide even more needs, to be able to help do more for the kingdom of God. Here's the third one. I'll close this up because I know it's running out of short on time here. But third one is solitude. Solitude. C.S. Lewis says, we in fact, we live in fact in a world starved for solitude, silence, 
and private. And that is still true today. We starved for it. Solitude has a purpose. Solitude has a meaning. Its, Its purpose is to commune with God. The purpose of solitude, the real purpose of solitude in the way of spiritual disciplines is to commune and experience the presence of God in your life. Here's how Jesus would sometimes talk about it. This is specific, and especially when he talks about prayer. But here's what he says in Matthew 6. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and synagogues where everybody can see them. And tell you the truth, this is, this is all the reward they're going to get. Like this, this idea of just praying publicly, and that's not, that's not necessarily what you're called to in terms of prayer and in terms of communicating with God. He says, but when you pray... Go by yourself, right? Shut the door behind you. You know, close, close it out. Close out the distractions. Pray to your father in private. Then your father who sees everything will reward you, right? Your father who sees everything will reward you, okay? Now listen, whether it's your devotions, whether it's your uh, morning time, whether it's true solitude retreats and breaks, like it's not meant to be, you know, it's not meant to have a really great, snapshot a picture of a Bible and a cup of coffee and like a great alone time with God today. Like if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong, okay? Like that's just not what it's for. It's not for Instagram. It's not for Facebook. It's for you and God. And, and, and don't confuse solitude with isolation. You can isolate yourself for a whole lot of reasons, okay? Some people love this. I mean, I know, you know, some people are just like, oh, I've been training for this my whole life. Solitude, this is fantastic. You know, I, I, I get it, you know, you, you, maybe by your personality or experiences or whatever, there's some reasons that you would prefer to be alone, you prefer to be isolated, but don't confuse isolation with solitude. Solitude is not to be alone. It's to be with God. It's to be able to experience communion and conversation and the presence of God. It's for refreshing of your soul. Psalm 23 says, you know, you, you, you lead me beside the, beside the still waters. You, you put me, you restore my soul, right? That's, that is the beautiful picture of solitude that we're given. And it's not, don't assume it's easy. Matter of fact, we're given this example by Jesus, and I want to read this, this little passage that gives context to the example that we see in Jesus' life. This actually comes from a book called the uh, spiritual disciplines are for the Christian life. Um, but I want to give it to you. It's from Mark 1. This is early on in, in Jesus' ministry. It says, after Jesus left the synagogue with James John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Okay. Uh, now Simon's mother-in-law was sick and in bed with a high fever, and they told Jesus about her right away. Right? So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, helped her sit up, then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. Doesn't that just sound like a mom? right there, like just got healed, already making a fuss about dinner, right? Already making a fuss. So keep going. That evening after sunset, though many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, right? The whole town gathered at the door to watch. I mean, this was a, a, a huge scene. Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he didn't allow them to speak. Again, this is early on. He hadn't fully revealed that he was the Messiah, uh, you know, in terms of who he was. So the demons knew who Jesus was. They knew who he was. He's like, you can't talk. That's not time yet. But before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up. He went out to an isolated place to pray. 
Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. And when they found him, they said, everybody read it out loud. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. We have a whole group of people here. Whole town showed back up. Now, again, we see this modeled in Jesus' life, but let's not assume that this was some sort of easy rhythm for him to just like in the yawning and the morning and just getting away with his coffee and his, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't assume that. This is why I love the context of this. Jesus had to pull himself away. And I love this. This is a quote from the book. Put yourself in Jesus' sandals for a minute. People are clamoring for your help and they have many real needs. Are you able, and sorry, you are able to meet those needs. Can you feel justified in pulling yourself away? Most of us cannot. Jesus did. We love to feel wanted. We love the sense of importance, power, and indispensability that comes from doing something that no one else can do, but Jesus never succumbed to these temptations. However, he knew the importance of the disciplining of himself to be alone. Disciplining himself to be alone. This is, for me, and I don't do this very well, I'll just share that with you up front. I might, I'm not a personality that loves solitude. I'm not. Um, I, I live life as many of you, at the speed of the urgent, at the speed of the demands of life around me. But I have had enough experiences with solitude to understand its value, to understand that it is something that I, my soul really does crave and need. And it's one of those few things I was going to tell you, I, I, where I get a lot of this is I enjoy going out in my kayak. So I have a little kayak and I enjoy going out in my kayak because of a lot of reasons, outside nature, everything else. But what's interesting is that honestly, the most satisfaction I get after I've been out in my kayak is the forced solitude. Everybody with me? Like it's the forced solitude. Like I enjoy so much about it, but then... The, 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 the iPad goes there, the, uh, the, the, uh, the iPhone goes off with music and so on and so on, and the quiet begins, and it's just me and God. And it's amazing. And sometimes an hour and a half can go into three hours, my wife will tell you. It can go a little bit longer just because, honestly, the solitude was where I was really being refreshed and restored. It was forced on me because it's not something I necessarily am good at choosing to do, but I do recognize its benefits. Sometimes God does call us to this, calls us to be still and to be quiet. This is from Lamentations. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to those who seek him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 28, and actually says that, let him sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. I mean, there's something that God's put on your heart. And again, he doesn't need you to call five of your friends to go to coffee. Maybe he does, but most of the time, right? He might just want you to sit with it but you're going to have to have some solitude. Another great quote that I love that kind of re resonates with me, in order to understand the world, one has to turn away from it on occasion. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time looking at the world right now going, what in the world is going on? And I love that quote where it's just like, yeah, in order to understand the world sometimes, we're going to have to turn it off. We're going to have to turn away from it on occasion. Uh, I, again, I don't do this very well. Pastor Nicole, our children's pastor, Pastor Mike, they actually do this fairly well on our staff. They're, they both engaged in a place called the Well of Mercy, which is just up the, uh, up the way closer to Statesville. 
and it's a great place you can create your own uh, space. You can go to programs they already serve. Um, I know yesterday, or yeah, Saturday, uh, Lynn um, True took a whole group of our ladies out for a walk uh, in nature somewhere. I don't know where they went. They went on a walk, but it was kind of, part of it was to get alone, experience God, have some pull away and solitude even in that walk, and I heard it was great. Um, it's one of those things that I just don't think you should live without. But again, it's, it's personal. No, nobody can make you get alone. And guys, I'm just telling you, it's so different than the three hours that just went by while you were watching a show, right? I mean, these are distractions. These are isolating for different reasons. Sure, some of it might be physical rest, but more than you need physical rest, your soul and your spirit need to be renewed. Another thing that I, I again, I see in Scripture, and I'll, I'll give us a, I'll start closing this out. This is another passage. I think solitude is more necessary than we realize when we're grieving. And I'm, I'm just telling you, I, I underestimate sometimes the power of grief in people's lives and what they, what they have to walk through. Because it's not just a refreshing that you need, it's a healing that you need. And Jesus himself, when he heard the news that John the Baptist, his cousin, was beheaded by Herod. So he finds out that John the Baptist, his pre, pre, kind of predecessor, was, was beheaded, finally killed. He'd been imprisoned by Herod. It says Jesus heard the news and left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. But <laughs> the crowds heard where he was headed. And he, they followed on foot for many towns. And Jesus saw the huge crowd of people. He stepped out from the boat and he had, what's the word? Say it out loud. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matter of fact, this is, this is the precursor to him feeding the 5,000. Right here. And I'm just I'm throwing it out there to you just to help you understand, like, the, the importance of solitude isn't just a good habit and discipline, but it's sometimes so needed that we don't even realize it. Again, even for healing or going through grief, you need these moments just with God, right? Alone, remote. Because I think about something like this, and I think, had Jesus not gotten away, how compassionate would he have been? Because if I put myself in my shoes, sometimes I am not engaging in the things that I need to heal, so I have nothing to give anyone. No compassion. No willingness to, to serve. No willingness to feed them and to give them what they need. So real quick, here's the list. And again, we just hit three of them today. Like, that's it. Just three small ones. But I want you to consider looking at one or two of these, any of them, that you've not been engaging in, and I want you to stay, take a step and engage in it. I know it sounds selfish, but do it just even if it's just for you for right now. Do this step for you. It's going to benefit you. It's going to benefit, it's going to grow your faith. But I also know it's going to benefit the kingdom if you're walking in these disciplines because of what God wants to do in and through you. Uh, just real quick, one of the self-care things I, 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 that's around, been going on for about a year or two now on the social media, on the web, is uh, grounding. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say that? Grounding, right? There's a few nods, right? Grounding is a self-care trend right now that kind of follows the idea that we are these bioelectrical 
organisms that have currents and things running through us and the pH balances and all the things, right? And, and in order to, and then it gets screwed up and you know, whatever. And in order to kind of ground us or to reset those things, we have to take our shoes off and we have to go find some, sur- some soil or some dirt or some sand or something and put our feet in it, right? Let Mother Earth just kind of ground us, right? Let the electrical currents kind of go and do and whatever. That's great. I Listen, I'm not smart enough to know whether that's a load of garbage or not, right? I mean, I'm just telling you, this is a self-care thing that's very trending right now, okay? You take your shoes off, you ground yourself, and it's supposed to help you. That's great. But I'll be honest, it grieves me to know the number of people who will take their shoes off and try that who won't try any of these. So that's my challenge today. Nothing you were going to do it anyway. But before you take your shoes off to ground yourself, choose one or two disciplines. The things that God's word has already told us is going to help grow your faith. Why? Because when you put your faith into action, right? When your faith goes into action, it meets God's faithfulness. And it grows you in confidence and assurance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the challenge of your word. I'm thankful for all the disciplines, God, that you so richly gave us and created for us to commune with you and love you and connect with you. But God, I am, uh, I'll confess where I'm weak in so many of them, um, that God, even I know that through this, preparing for this series, you've already laid one or two on my heart that you want me to you know, engage with and increase with. And that's my prayer for everyone here today, that there would just be that prompt from the Holy Spirit, that these are the things to take steps in, whether it's memory verses or giving or tithing or uh, solitude or, uh, you know, worship, like it doesn't, like whatever they are, God, as you prompt us, may we just put it into practice. May we make it something we do, not just something we know. And because of that, will you just, in only the way that you can, just exponentially show up and grow us, grow our faith. Let us experience more confidence, more assurance because of who you are. Not because of what we're doing, but because you met us in the midst of it. And God, we thank you for that. It's only by your power and your grace we pray, Jesus.